0: It's hard to be a good VC. Like, really hard. How do you work with founders to really truthfully, honestly add value to their work? How do you spot trends in industries that are not apparent yet? At Seedcamp, we think about these questions a lot. And we know that wisdom lies in our community. Today's guest on our show, Matt Mazio, a partner at Coacher Management, has some answers for us. You're listening to This Much I Know. The Seed Camp podcast.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to This Much I Know. Carlos, how are you, man? Man, I'm I'm super excited to finally get this chat and to to be able to like pick your brain on a couple of ideas and themes. Super yeah, let's. Play. So to kick things off, I think it's useful for people to know a little bit about what it means to be a general partner at KOTU Management, what, yeah. what the organization does and, and where you fit into it. Just uh, give us the lay of the land.
0: All right, let's riff. Um, so I'm a general partner at KOTU. Uh, I've been here about two and a half years. Part of my job, uh, most of my job is investing into early stage companies. So uh, KOTU has been around for 20 years. We started as a hedge fund about a decade ago. Uh, we started investing into private markets with a growth fund. We're now in our fourth of those. Uh, in about two and a half years, I joined to help us build out a venture fund and recruited a bunch of friends and team. And then we raised about $700 million to invest from the seed stage to the Series B, which is where I spend the bulk of my time. Uh, I invest primarily into sort of like consumer and then consumery fintech and consumer enterprise businesses. Um, and I can go deep into each one of those. But really, the job is the same thing I've been doing for more than a decade, which is like finding early stage companies that I like to work on, uh, finding people that I like to work with and, uh, and giving them both capital, resources, relationships and, uh, and sort of getting hands dirty to, to do it. Um, and you know, Just- now that I'm in KOTU, it's kind of a different level of it as well. You know, um, the resources that you can bring when you're investing from the very beginning of a company all the way into like every subsequent round into the post-public uh, ecosystem and the, you know, the platform that the firm has built over the last 20 years is, uh, is just a different level of resource than I've ever had at my disposal to go and do it. So it's been exciting.
1: That's great. Well, you know, we'll, we'll be learning a little bit more about what you're looking at in a second. But one of the things that I've I mentioned to you before we started that I like to do is to get to know the person is to talk about early days. Ancient, yeah. Um, talk about your, like the moment right after you graduated, what you studied and what your first job was like.
0: Happy to. It's, uh, so I was basically a psych and ec guy in college. So uh, I graduated uh, Harvard 2005. And, um, you know, I came out of college, you know, everyone else had a plan, a really strict, like people, you know, it, you know had a, a defined destination. They were going banking or consulting. They were going law and medicine. And they really had it nailed down. And uh, I didn't. Uh, I frankly, like, I had no idea what I want to do with my life. I got back to LA, salesy people and they were, you know, I kind of got insulted by it, but I decided to go and like learn about what it was. And, um, I realized that it kind of fit my personality perfectly of like going out, finding people that you wanted to work with and helping them build a career. And so, uh, you know, I talked to a, uh, a couple friends and one said, Hey, you should go to CAA. Uh, and that's where I started. So I ended up being, you know, a couple weeks out of graduating and I was lucky enough to land a job working for the guy who ran the film finance department. Uh, at CAA and I was an assistant to an assistant. And eventually I found my way to to an agent there who was developing this entirely new line of business called business development at CAA, which then meant like starting entirely new divisions of the company. So within a couple weeks of graduating, I'm working for this guy named Michael Yanover. And I started, you know, basically helping CAA develop into all these other categories.
1: We were talking about how we were both friends with with Yanover and and in and I was referencing that I uh, had watched a couple of YouTube interviews of earlier where you were talking a little bit about the lessons you learned from him on how to ask questions and kind of how to support and how to uh, give advice to founders. Maybe if, if you're looking back at, in those days and you had to summarize kind of like the top three things that Yan over taught you, and I'll send this to him and be like, look, look, what are the top three things you learned about how to engage with, with people to, to be able to really... Uh, add value there
0: yeah i think what was interesting and one of the things that i learned from michael was like he he asked questions in a way that got to two sort of truths it was like he asked questions to understand like he got really to like what what you he wanted to know what you were working on and sort of like had a framework for how to ask questions to get to the meat of it like i'd never seen in my life somebody who would like understand a business or an idea faster and the reason is just he had seen so many over his years that like he would come in and like within it felt like a few minutes he could dissect a business. It didn't matter where the business was in media entertainment. Like that's where he was focused, you know, because he had had jobs in film and TV and music and uh, video games and all. And, you know, uh, and digital businesses and certainly having an understanding for the questions to ask to get to the meat of what a business was driven by was really important. And then the other thought side was equally important was understanding, you know, how to get to the heart of the person and yeah. like what mattered to them. And what drove them, um, and asking both of those questions in tandem. And some, what I find is in venture, often people can really laser in on this first one. Like there's an there's a desire to like really get to the heart of the company, and you kind of miss the entire other part of it, which is getting to the person on the other side of the table. And so, what was unique is he never started a conversation around like you know, tell me what you're working on. That was it. That was never the start. It was always like, how did you get here? Like, understand the person first. You know, it's funny. there was a moment in time between, uh, between Lowercase and two where I was thinking of starting my own fund and calling it Backstory Capital because largely it was built around this idea that like, and I got it from Michael, was uh, understanding someone's backstory is crucial. And what, what pieces brought them to where they are is, is kind of like, uh, is the magic of doing this job too. And so um, he would ask these questions and by the end of the conversation, there was a third thing that he would get. So if the number one was like, you know, the person, number two is the business and the meat of it, and number three was how he could help. And, you know, he wouldn't do it in this, like, VC value-add way. It was never, uh, you know, it was never, like, what can I do to add value? That was never the conversation. Frankly, this was, like, a CAA truth. Like, these three things, like, understanding the person, understanding, the, you know, the, the, the career, and then understanding the last, which was, like, how you could make an impact. It was, like, panning for gold. You would, in the midst of the conversation, You'd be sitting there sifting for, you know, what you could do to make an impact on that person's life. And then you would do it. You wouldn't ask for help. You wouldn't ask for like, you wouldn't like, you know, ask them what you could do to add value. It was like an active listening process through the entire conversation. And once you found it, you knew it. And it was like, I watched the agents at the, at the company and I watched the best people in business do this consistently. There was uh, one of the guys who ran the firm, Richard Lovett was probably the best I'd ever seen at this. And at some point, he would write down something in his, in his notebook. And I, I would ask him, like, what did you write down? And he's like, he, he would write down the thing that would be most important in his purview that he could do to help that person in their career. And then he would deliver on it, Un- unsolicited, unasked. It was like a surprise. It was like a gift that he could do for that person. And forever, it was like a reminder of like, uh, wow, that person really cared about me. And if you can nail those three things in a conversation, you've nailed it. And um, it's kind of how I run every conversation that I'm in now.
1: The reason why I think it's become a meme of VCs saying, "How can I add value?" is partially because some of them probably are very cynical about it, if not entirely um, just saying it as a matter of course. How do you how do you see in a, in a world where you know every investor is trying to get a head up on somebody else? that it doesn't just start losing its value. I mean, where did
0: this meme come from, you know? That's the problem with it, is I think the meme came from like really great intent, like the venture ecosystem and the tech ecosystem. Like one of the things that this, you know, this part of the world has that I haven't seen in many other places is a willingness to help. You can go out there and get advice and support. You can ask questions. In a way that like the entertainment industry never would have shared. There's this, there is a willingness to help in this ecosystem where it gets memefied is like when it's transactional, where people are like, I helped you and the quid pro quo of it. That's where it gets particularly gross. But like the idea that you can go out and get helped in this ecosystem is not something I'll ever knock. And it's like, if you approach the world like that, if you approach the world where I'm just going to help. You build incredible reputation. It comes back to you like a thousandfold. It's like the greatest hack in the universe is like this compounding help. If you just go in with that intention in life, compounding support and compounding help is like the greatest investment you can make in yourself. You know, um, But like, it's sad that it's become a meme because I think the heart of it is golden. Do you think that
1: as, as the ecosystem has been evolving and as deals have gotten more competitive, with time because there's more funds, do you feel like the, the increased competitiveness is helping founders um, and, and if you're a founder let's say based in Europe, is it is the, the valley the next best place to go raise just because of the hyper competitiveness people trying to outdo each other, or would you say that it's that there's no
0: correlation there: I think it's been a benefit for everybody. more capital in market means more founders have access to capital. It means that like you know the industry has been sort of like forced to become more uh, you know, transparent clearly a lot of work left to do, to do on that path. But like having more competition, more dollars at work has been better, net better for founders. No question. How is and that I mean,
1: evolved over time? Like has it now been that the, the role of the typical investor has now fractured into maybe facilitating checks alongside angels who are now, leading the charge for, for seed stage. How's that, how's that shifted now? Like what's it, what's a typical say pre seed seed, series a round look like today versus a couple of years ago in terms of who's leading it, what they're doing for the company.
0: I mean, this is like constantly evolving. I think the, the only truth there is, you know, whatever I say today is going to be outdated in a few months, candidly, like, yeah. And I look at it more like, a blend from like every stage. There is no one path anymore. Like there's like a thousand options available to you. You can go to list. You can go to an incubator. You can go to an accelerator. You can go to a seed fund. You can go to a series A fund. Like the blend of fundraising options available to a company, whereas it used to be maybe like, I have to go and pitch this to the 20 funds on Sand Hill Road. Like that day is totally blown apart, right? Like, there is no singular path and there's a lot of ways to win. You know, if you're, if you're trying to like fundraise for a company, those options are like wildly more accessible today. Um, the challenge is, is like with that optionality comes less clarity on the right path. And I've seen more and more people step into sort of minds along the way because they fundraise in ways that are like a little bit more exotic and like, you know, with that sort of increases the risk associated with a different fundraising environment.
1: That's a, a good sort of transition point to bring it back to to your transition from CAA to to Lowercase, because, you know, Lowercase is such an institution and such a great brand um, in, in the region. And it was interesting to see how you made that leap.
0: Yeah, the story goes, I was like, I was the only person at CAA kind of like really focused on this ecosystem of like, you know, they kind of let me go run wild. So I got an office in San Francisco. You know, CA was really about film, television, music. For those don't know, don't know, we had about half of the talent in the ecosystem on our platform. And that meant we were representing them in film, television, music, sports, licensing, endorsements, like, you know, all the different areas that you could imagine for, for a career for artists like Will Smith and Tom Hanks and Tom Cruise and Spielberg and Oprah and a whole bunch of different categories of talent. And my role was helping them figure out all things startup and digital. So literally I got to like, I went up a couple days a week. I was, you know, covering, you know, VC firms and tech companies and startups the same way that my colleagues covered studios, networks, sports teams, leagues, and brands. I got to go cover tech. And it was awesome. The most fun you could possibly have in your 20s. And I was out there like, you know, when Netflix or when Amazon or Tencent was like, How do we partner with talent? I was basically the person. When if you were an early stage startup, you know, which one day, you know, that meant you were YouTube, right? When Steve and Chad came down to LA and they were like, How do we partner with talent? Like they were meeting with Michael and I, and that was like that we were the front lines uh, for all the talent of the agency. So, if you wanted to learn about that ecosystem, moving tech, tech and entertainment, it was just a weird moment in time to be able to learn at like hyperspeed. Um, and I was the one covering all things like you know Y Combinator and South by Southwest. And I got to, in the process of that, I got to know a bunch of the early people who were actually building in this ecosystem and who, like, for who LA and entertainment and media was like interesting, but like super far off, not like core to what they were working on. And I just, like, love the the gooey middle between those two worlds. Um, And then my friend who was, like, you know, um, basically working with Eric Schmidt at Google, Saka, you know, he started angel investing. He was, like, you know, doing, uh, doing, you know, the first sort of, like, super angel-y fund where he was raising a little bit of capital – and he was like, "Hey, Maz, you should really join me. We should do this together. You're basically a VC. You just don't have a fund. You know, you're helping all these companies succeed. You're helping build partnerships. You're even starting companies like where you're raising money for things like Funny or Die and and Hussein and others. Like, you should really just do this with me and let let's run at it." And I'm like, "Listen, I had I have the most fun job you could possibly imagine. CA, and I love the people. Like, I thought I was gonna like retire in a suit. Like, that was it for me. And then." I don't know if you've ever met Chris, but he's like a very compelling human. And so when he wants to, when he wants to sell, he he can generally sell. Um, And so he sold me, I like the, the vision of lowercase and the two of us running after companies and early stage investing. And like, it was, it's a compelling vision. And it was some of the most fun times I've ever had in my life.
1: What was the biggest few lessons? I'll give you an example of, of one of the lessons that I learned. I used to be an engineer. And when I transitioned into, um, into investing, I the, the, Probably the biggest mistake I made early days was to fall in love with the idea because yeah. you, like the, you like the solution and you like what they were working on, but it was not the right team to make it happen. And in that, that I had to learn that lesson the hard way. What, what was it like for you in those years, early years with, with SACA, that the lessons that you had learned to some extent at CAA, but that in practice within a fund no longer made sense or needed adaptation?
0: I, I I don't even know where to start. I'll just start riffing and you tell me when to shut up. How about that? Um, I, learned, I learned how to evolve the questions that I was asking and how to like lead a narrative. I learned how to storytell. Um, I learned how to go and sit down with a founder and narrate the business of that founder's life or, the, you know, of what they were going after and put it into language that sometimes the founders didn't even have yet. Um, I would watch Chris go into a, si- a scene with a founder and like, he would come out with like the screenplay of the of the company. He would be able to write the narrative often better than the founder had before. And like he had a saying, like stories beat spreadsheets every time. And the reason is because you know, he could tell a narrative for a founder and a product and a market and opportunity um, with such clarity that it would often inform how that founder then raised from the rest of the funds um, and other partners. And it was because we sat in this weird middle between, like, funds and employees and multiple companies that we had a narrative for, for, uh, for opportunities in a way that others didn't when they were sort of heads, sort of heads down.
1: What is the, 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 the founder relationship or the, or the investment that you feel most proud of looking back? Oh, wow.
0: Um, Not which one made you, you know which one was the most successful? one where you were like, okay. It's a, hard fra- it's a hard framing and it's not the right framing. It's a bait that I won't take. And the reason I won't take it is because like, this isn't a job for me. It's not like a founder relationship. It would be, like, be me like me asking you like, who's your best friend. I don't know. Like it doesn't feel right to be like, ah, oh, it's this, this one. And this is the one I'm most proud of. Like, um, Wait, but- Let me flip it
1: then. Which is the lowest point during that period? Cause I mean, we all have one. Like I, you know, one of the ones that I wrote a blog post about that happened to me about, five years ago was there was an argument with another co-investor around a specific issue. And, you know, at the time I looked back and I could have handled it a lot better by just being, even though it was more painful is to be more upfront about that specific scenario. Like, dude, look, you're screwing me over. And I just avoided it and they just blew up later. But what was it it. for you?
0: It's, it's a, it's a, the, the underlying, the underpinning what you just said is it is the root of all of them. And it's something that now I aggressively like snuff out whenever I feel it. And the feeling is avoidance and expectation mismanagement. It's like when I believed something and like, and I expected something that I didn't confront and I knew that there was a tension there, we all feel it. Every, every single person. It's like, it's universal. And it's like your willingness to like confront those tensions fast that like actually leads to like avoiding pain later. Like, the harder, to, like, if you're able to hit head on and just say what you believe and say what you mean and flesh out your expectations, like, and discuss them publicly, transparently, like, I have this belief or I have this expectation and I feel like we might be on different pages on this. It's okay to have that confrontation, but, like, not having it leads to, like, many, many, dis- it's like building on, on toothpicks. And what ends up happening is you layer on top of these toothpicks without ever like discussing the bottom and it always collapses. The bigger, the, the bigger, the building, the, the bigger, the collapse, like, and the more you time you take between like, when you start to feel that, that disconnect versus like when you actually confront it, like that's, that is actually like the secret to good relationships. Like, and I, frankly, it's like with friends, with business partners, with like investments, with your partner, like just hitting that, like that that tension head on is actually like one of the best secrets to life I've found. Like, and I refuse to live in that tension. I would rather just like have the hard conversation immediately and discuss something upfront. And if you do it, like if you relish in that, and like, you know, diffusing the tension, you just have fewer bombs in your life and you just feel better. Yeah. We all feel this. Like, I am sure that right now, when I said that, some people watching this or listening to this had something in their brain that was like, I feel that tension right now that some, there is some relationship where you are letting a tense attention fester. And it, if you, if you feel that in anything, my, my advice to whoever is listening to this is go and have a hard conversation today because avoiding it is not going to help you. And at some point it will explode in your face. Go have the hard conversation. That's my best advice. Unsolicited. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's great advice and, and I would echo that. And I think that what's tricky is that not every investor is as open as you, Matt. And I think pers- if a founder were listening to this, and there's a few um, that I could think of top of my head that would be a bit sort of like concerned about having to even try to bridge that conversation with their existing investors. But, you know, it's, it's, I think you, you would echo that it's something you just have to find a way of doing it and try to expedite as much as possible.
0: Yeah, the, the answer is it is, always, it is never going to be comfortable. That's the truth. It will never go away. It will never be comfortable. It's like, uh, it's like people who stay in a bad relationship for years longer because they're not willing to go through the hard breakup. And like you, the problem is you, one, you screw up the opportunity cost that could have happened post the conversation. And two, like you end up having like the mismanagement of expectations only gets worse. Like, and you, you, um, both people obsess on it, on both sides. You are both thinking about the same mismatch in expectations. And so that t- brain time is just like, it starts to like complicate things even worse. Mm. When you feel it, like some people obsess on it over and over and over. And you can just expect that if you're thinking about the mismanaged expectations, the other person is too. And it's so just like-
1: Let me pick up on that thread. And and I want to come back to the sectors that, we're, that you're interested in today. Yeah. You know, the areas I want to come back to that. So don't worry, we, we will. But I think that this, you brought up a really interesting point, which is- sometimes there's a mismanagement of expectations that can form between founders and investors, not because there's like a a suppression of the truth. Rather, it could be philosophical approaches. Like, for example, take a founder who might have a very specific product vision and that product vision isn't necessarily mapping to uh, a particular way of exploring customer development. And then you have investors who have a specific view on, you know, like (laughs) testing this out. And I'm just curious, you know, like how do you reconcile that?
0: Yeah. So it's funny. This actually happens like at every step too. So like I find this problem happens between investors and like, and, and founders at the pitch stage. And what happens is like you fill in the gap. Like this happens a lot when, when an investor is like looking for a company that does X and they find a founder working something in that problem set. And they're like, Oh, I found it. I found the thing in my head. And it's like, You know, they give, they make the investment, they hunt it down, they close the deal, and they get into the relationship. They're like, what they realize that instead of asking questions, they filled the the white spaces in between, and what they realize is they filled them in different colors. And like, when you get into the conversation about what what's actually getting built or where the product direction is going or what could be there, they try to push, they try to nudge in that direction, and uh, and when you start to nudge, it's uncomfortable. And rather than be like transparent about like, I think your opportunity is this you're the founder, you're building this, I believe there is an opportunity in this category that I think you should explore versus like, you need to do x. And like, that's this like weird tension that sometimes builds. And the need to do or you should do or like that, like, that is something that you that I've stamped out in myself, like, you know, I'm all for having transparent discussion about where I think there is opportunity. But you know, you you invest in like, the founder and you invest in like what their vision is, not what you want their vision to be. But that I've seen that, like what you're referencing, I've seen that start all the way at the pitch stage and it's tied to like, you know, again, it's when you, you start dating someone and you you think like, uh, Oh, I found this person and they are all of these things. You fill in the blank spaces in between rather than asking those questions. Um, it's an interesting uh, sort of a natural tendency that I think filters into all different parts of like yeah. relationships. Uh, and and
1: for the founders like, listening to this. There you go. Like if you, if you sense that you're pitching to somebody and that's what's happening,
0: watch out now. Yeah. And, and it's okay to ask both ways. Like, it's really important to ask like, Hey, I, you know, this is the vision that I have. Like, is this the vision that you align with? Or are you, are you in line with like, like when you hear the, I've been looking for this, like, Make sure that this is the same this, because like that word, that little con- you know uh, short four letter word might be totally different products, might be totally different go to markets. Like this hides a lot of de- of detail, and like getting an understanding for what this is and making sure we're both aligned on this is actually like a super important you know uh, exercise.
1: It is, and and on on this, <laughs> let's cover. The sectors that you're looking at at the moment. So one of the things that we were talking about last time we caught up was, you know, we're filming this right now during somewhat opening up post COVID. And, you know, some of the themes that emerged during this time were around remote work and uh, online events and an increase in health and health uh, products. But maybe we just lay the groundwork with, what are the areas that, that you're interested in looking at at the moment that you know, are unique to the times that we're living in versus those that are just kind of what you're interested in, period?
0: I mean, there's, uh, there's certain things that are just obvious now. That like, my, part of our job is like finding things before they're obvious, right? Like, and holding that discomfort. Um, one, of the op- one of the nice things and the challenging things of this moment is a lot of the, the categories that we were investing into you know, for the last five years are now obvious to everybody. Um, you know, good and bad in that. Like the good in that is like you don't have to hold this feeling of being you know uncertain for a long time. The bad of it is now everybody is going investing into these things. So like remote work is almost like a meme. Like once it beca- once once your investment category becomes a hashtag, you know you might have to look in another category. You might have to start looking elsewhere. But like the obvious things like video first, right? Like. The idea that we're all now video first, by, you know, that there's a cost that wasn't there to in-person interaction has has engendered an entirely new cat. Like Zoom is a verb. Uh, you know, if I ask people, "Had you been to a uh, you know uh, you know a virtual event prior to this moment?" They'd say, "No, you're crazy. That sounds like some nerdery." And now it's like everyone has been to like you know an online X, whether it's a class, a workout, a happy hour, you know, a conference. We have to, and so. Like, all these things that were going to be inevitable just got thrust into the future years and, you know, years and weeks compressed. And so, like, I think those trends are, like, not going anywhere. I think, like, those were inevitable on the exponential curve, and we just, like, uh, accelerated that future. The things that are also sort of tied to that are this idea of, like, how do we communicate around our work process? Like, all the things that you used to be able to do that you used to be able to do by being in the same physical space, like, have to be represented somehow digitally, right? And it's like the little moments, it's like the the nooks and crannies around, like the look over the sh- the experience of looking over someone's shoulder or whiteboarding in a room or like you know as you were building a model together, uh, uh, like sitting around a laptop or sitting next to each other and you were co like you have to represent those things digitally. And it turns out, like if your current methodology for you know doing that is like sending a file back and forth that's a really shitty way to communicate. And so like having some sort of like real time, multiplayer modality, like, you know, cloud interactivity, like those things that, you know, we've seen in design, we've seen in like databases, we've seen in like spreadsheet, like all of those things are now forced to be like real time, digital cloud native, multiplayer, mobile, like obvious, pick your big category. If it's like on-prem tied to, you know, if it's single player on-prem, you know, in an essential business modality, like it's now going to be cloud first, multiplayer, mobile enabled, you know, those things are somewhat obvious now. What's the not obvious? What's the not obvious? Um, Automation, I think is finally getting to a place where it's going to be massively impacting all parts of our lives. And so like, you know, it's happened in the enterprise. There are a bunch of companies that are automating out, like, repetitive workflows, that whole process RPA ecosystem. I feel like that is the beginning of something that is going to permeate almost all parts of our world. And any process that's repetitive, if you do it more than once, or if you do it many times daily, like, expect that process to be quick, automated, and beautiful. And, uh, and I'm starting to see, like, founders take that understanding that has infiltrated the enterprise and apply it to, like, all parts of consumer life, from purchase to like scheduling, to, you know, um, to all the little nooks and crannies that were like inefficiencies in your life, to applying for forms online, to navigating you know, government services. All of those things are going to start to be automated more. Um, that's a good thing. It's going to save a lot of people time.
1: So I'm, I'm, we're going to play a game. <laughs> I'm going to throw some sectors out at you, and I want you to either just say, yep, yeah, obvious, not obvious. And then if, if it's not obvious whether or not you think it's just that even though it might be, um, you know, interesting times, that it's just that these times have forced uh, to look at it in a different way. Yep. So here we go. First one is voice technologies, voice enabling technologies.
0: Super obvious. Come on. Like... Voice is like the hidden channel staring everybody in the face. You have every device. Everybody's got like 50 different mics and speakers in their ecosystem. They've got Alexas. They've got like their phone. They've got AirPods. Like this one's like, it's a no brainer. Of course, b- voice and audio are like married together in a world where like, you know, it, it, I often look at sci-fi and I'm like, oh, that of course that world's coming. And you look at the movie Her and it's whatever now, 10 years old or something. But it feels obvious. Like the combination of like more mics, more speakers, the combination of like Voice, uh, you know, analytics and like machine learning for like voice recognition, things like Otter that are now capturing more data, things like hugging face, which have made like, you know, really sophisticated NLP available to anybody. Like, I mean, if you don't believe that that, that ecosystem is coming for us, where you're going to like interact with like machines using your voice, you're just not paying attention to the like proliferation of like device technology and the, like the underpinnings that are getting built for it. And we're just starting to see like the products that are going to get built on top of it for work, for play, for fun, for, for everywhere. So yeah. Uh,
1: Property technologies.
0: Oh, um, property technologies. I think obvious. Um, I think like, again, this is, it's such a massive part of GDP and like, you know, is real estate and like physical environment. I think the migration of like bits, bits and bytes to atoms. um, is like feeling more obvious to people that you're going to have technology infiltrate. Like, you know, the devices are getting smaller, you know, compute on the edge. There's just more stuff that you can do now in like devices and, and intelligence in all parts of those workflows. And it's just a huge market. Let
1: me just qualify. When you're saying obvious about tech, are you saying that the, the, cause there's a temptation to say all of these are obvious, but with the contraction, especially in people who are going to be able to pay, for leaseholds and stuff like that, do you see that the, the prop tech is an obvious one long term? But it's just that short term, it's not so obvious because there, there's a contraction in, in who's willing to pay for these products and services.
0: Yeah, I think it's obvious because like massive industry historically untechified, um, you know, uh, multiple sort of like services getting built simultaneously that feel like like for every part of the stack from like how you live and the physicality of like devices at the edge, like that's getting easier and cheaper and like you're just getting like all these like natural tailwinds for technology to move into an ecosystem Mm -hmm. and then like when you start to look at like prop tech in in every form from like purchasing to leasing to like management of the properties like all the things that go into the ecosystem buying and selling land like all of that has historically been pen and paper and facts and discussion that is now migrating into like cloud first digital first like you know mobile like It's just too big of an industry not to have all of those workflows built into it. And so in my mind, like the answer is like obvious because huge ecosystem that's like legacy that like wasn't moving fast enough and is now like, you know, being infiltrated from every perspective, from the consumer side with like smart homes and smart devices all the way into like, you know, the enterprise side with like techifying and bringing intelligence to like purchasing, managing and all the workflows around like property. And so fair
1: enough. All right, tools tools for developers to develop faster.
0: Uh, I mean, uh,
1: super I obvious. Specifically saying not dev tools, but like, you know, IDEs and stuff like that. Super obvious? Yes, but super now, obvious.
0: Everyone has realized that, you know, that developers have superpowers to build technologies, that like powering them with more superpowers is like a good business because you can like, they're fast adopters and you can build interesting businesses and they'll like, you know, they become, they can become infrastructure players for like a whole new world of like technologies that like selling an API can lead to a big, big business, right? Like, and if you market to a developer, you're marketing to the people who have massive leverage within a business. And they're now like, not just like the builders, they're also the decision makers for essential tools and services. And so like, you want to build new tools for those people because they become the things that power what it could be like massive scalable businesses, and marketplaces, public and private companies. And so like, you're gonna to start to build dev tools because there's a lot of value at that point of entry. So pretty obvious. Uh, the other thing is like, there's just more of them. And so like, you have more developers, you know, over time and like selling to a growing ecosystem, new entrants is generally a good way to like build a business. So pretty obvious.
1: I'm trying to f- I'm trying to figure out how I can get a not obvious out of you. Let's see. Uh, it- VR,
0: VR, is that played out oh, still? Not obvious. No. There we go. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, like, and by the way, like, I am the biggest nerd on the planet. I've bought every device. I should be. I was a gamer as a kid. I'm still a gamer. Like, I love games. I love experiences like VR. I want it so bad. But we're in the middle of COVID, and no one gives a crap about VR. Like. Nobody cares. Nobody wants to sit there with that experience and their head, on, head in it. Like, it's just, I've invested in this category. I want it to work desperately. I want that future, bring it to me now. But like, it's not obvious that anybody wants it and you can't force something that people don't want yet. And I feel like we are at like the precipice of an iPhone moment. Like there was a lot of smartphones that were prior that didn't get the form factor nailed perfectly it feels like the technology is getting to a place and we've had enough false starts yet where like someone is going to nail it. So like we are at the place of visual first immersive compute. Like that feels like it is coming, but it is today's form factor is not obvious that that is going to work. But we are an iPhone moment away from it being, you know, a, a trigger for everyone. And yeah. that is not, that is not obvious to me that that is immediate and it won't be until we see the iPhone for this key category.
1: So the, the last one in the categories kind of stemming from the VR question, and this is mostly because of the volume of solutions out there, but live audio, whether oh. it be, whether it be a, a new podcast platform, a new broadcast platform, a new content maker played out or not played out?
0: No, it's just getting started. And the reason for live audio is because, like, um, it is a weirdly intimate channel. And it is a really powerful channel for communication. And there's something about the human voice that, like, brings in intimacy. So a lot of the people, I'm sure, are going to be listening to this as a podcast, not a video. And they're going to hear my voice. And they will know me better than any tweet or any email could possibly get to know me. Like, there's something beautiful and special and intimate. And it feels, like, almost campfire-y. And it feels like we haven't quite nailed what that's gonna be, but I believe that it's actually just as powerful as video for a lot of people because it's multimodal. When you're doing when you're doing audio, you can be passive and there and doing all of these other things. Like you can actually multitask and listen to a discussion and have a conversation. And then on top of that, you're layering in interactivity. Like the voice bots are actually getting to a place where they're where they're functional, where Siri and Alexa and these things can interact with you, and there's enough sort of uh, oh Siri, my Alexa literally started talking in the background. Where you can like literally have like uh, you know interactivity with with your voice. That's a really powerful confluence of events that are all happening simultaneously. And so I'm super bullish on it.
1: Well, guys, I think we've we've had uh, quite a quite a good exhaustive list of sectors. Still, lots of opportunities to crack, which is a great thing to hear uh, from you, Matt. It's really encouraging to hear that. If anybody, right on, man. This. And um and we really enjoyed chatting. I mean, I could I could definitely keep on asking questions. I love <laughs> chatting with you. It's always I love the energy. But I also that, know that that if I you. were a founder, I would be like, "This is the guy I want to work with." So, okay, I, you know how to get a hold of him on the website. I'm sure that you can find a way of getting in touch. I don't know if
0: Matt, you you, you share your details or people. Yeah, Matt Azio on Twitter. I'm pretty active in the DMs, so just hit me up. Cool. Well,
1: with that, guys,
0: uh, thanks for
1: joining us, Matt.
0: You got it, bud. Thanks, Carlos. Great to hang. Always fun, man.